0: Hello and welcome back to the as a woman podcast. Today we are talking about what to expect at your first fertility visit. Now this might be something that you are anticipating or you might have friends going through fertility, but ultimately I think everybody does better if they know what to expect. If you know what is coming, you know what the layout is going to be, you're going to one, get the most out of the visit, but two, also be able to use your time the best and more efficiently and effectively move through fertility treatment. The truth is every single fertility clinic is very, very different. And I am going to tell you some generalizations. You may not fit with every clinic. And I think that is important. Too often people feel stuck and they stay somewhere that's not a good fit for them. You need to find a clinic that has a team that you trust, a doctor you trust, a communication style that vibes with you. And so part of that is going to be being able to have expectations set and meet them. Things that I think are a minimum is that you know you can get your questions answered. I mean, maybe it's not exactly that minute, but you know that there's a way and you know your expectations for success with whatever treatment you're doing, whatever that is and whatever success is defined by. That way, you have a general roadmap and outline for what is happening. All right. Before we dive in and talk about your first fertility visit, let's just go over a few announcements. One is at the end of every episode. You can find for Fertility Sake FFS. This is our weekly Q and A where I answer your fertility questions. These questions can get asked on Instagram every Monday at Natalie Crawford MD. You will find that we answer questions on Instagram here on the podcast and in the weekly newsletter. The newsletter is delivered right to your inbox. You can sign up nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter and its updates and my life or things I like. You're going to have fertility in the news, my hot take on fertility topics. You're going to have a fertility question answered so you can be learning about your body and you're going to see things like my favorite recipes and overall updates on content. You can also find and search all my content on the website nataliecrawfordmd.com slash resources. Type in PCOS and you can find everything I've ever made about PCOS. So that can be such a nice way to find deeper dives into topics that you're interested in because I know sometimes it's really hard to sort through an old content library and the podcast has been here for quite a while now. So dive on in if you are interested in learning more. All right. So what should you expect with your first fertility visit? At most places, you should be seeing a fertility doctor. That's not the case everywhere. So number one, you want to know who you're seeing. Do you get to choose your doctor? Was this doctor referred to you by a friend or your OBGYN or internet research? Or are they putting you with the next available? Do you get any say in the matter? Two, is it a doctor or is it a nurse practitioner or a PA or general OBGYN and not a fertility doctor? Every clinic is structured different and some places are not transparent. There are pros and cons to all of the other scenarios, and I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm saying you deserve to know who you're seeing and what their training is. In order to be a fertility doctor, you have to do medical school, a four-year OBGYN residency, and a three-year reproductive endocrinology and infertility residency. You have to sit for different boards, oral and written for each one, for OBGYN and for REI. So to be a true double board certified OBGYN REI, you do thousands and thousands of IVF cycles. You've seen lots of fertility patients. You have a bulk of experience. You've passed tests and you've had to do significant research in the field, proving you know how to understand it. But you deserve to know who you're seeing. So number one, who are you seeing? Number two, set them up for success no matter who they are data in equals data out have you ever heard that we use it a lot in research meaning if you have really poor data collected sloppy not good parameters you're not going to be able to trust your result if you are not giving your doctor all of your information and then you're throwing it at them in the middle of the consult oh i also had this test i did an ivf cycle in this place what do you think about my embryo transfer i don't know anything about it unless you gave it to me already So if you want my opinion on your cycles in the past, or on your medical labs, or what that semen analysis looks like, or what I would change, you've got to give me the records. Sometimes people get really weird about this. They don't want to ask for records from other clinics, or they feel like it's weird. It is very common in our field for people to get second opinions. That's not strange. You don't need to feel like you're hiding anything and you deserve this is your health care not mine not your other doctors this is your journey your time to have a baby or have a family so what you need to do is make sure that you are advocating for yourself the best and part of this is giving whoever is seeing you all the data that exists I can't tell you how many times somebody fills out their health history questionnaire you know the paperwork you get ahead of time and they just fly through it to try to get through it. And then they're telling me a completely different story. Most REIs I know, here's a hot take. We don't get through all that training and you don't go into this field with hormone minutia and IVF unless you really obsess about details. That makes us so good at our job, but you have to give us the details in order for us to make decisions. And I like the full picture. So fill out the paperwork to the best of your ability. Give your full medical history. If the questions are asking it, if you have had any fertility evaluation or treatment, get the records, give them to the person who's seeing you. Blood work, ultrasounds, HSG testing, semen analysis, prior IUI cycles or ovulation induction or IVF or surgery, give me the data. So I can make the best decisions and I can counsel you to the best of my ability. Another thing just to think about in preparation for your visit. So who are you going to see? Please set yourself and set them up for success by giving records and filling out your medical history completely. And number three, where is the visit? I know maybe that seems crazy, but a lot of people are still doing telemedicine. Some offices have multiple locations. And just make sure you're prepared. If you're driving to a location, make sure you know where it is, get there on time. Fertility clinics, not all of them, but most of them run very specific on timing because of the time sensitive nature of so much of what we do. So get there early, be prepared. If it's on telemedicine, do you have internet connection? Have you tested the platform? I have done so many virtual consults with people in their car or somewhere where they have terrible reception or terrible noise and that's just not the easiest and the best environment. A lot of your consults going to be education so your doctor is going to be talking a lot and trying to explain things to you and if you can't hear them or you're easily distracted or the internet's not very good that's going to be an issue. Personally I love telemedicine. I think it's the great neutralizer. There's nothing strange about waiting in the waiting room. You, if you have a partner, you often can join from different locations. There's no drive time across town or showing up to the wrong clinic. And it just seems like a more neutral place to really have somebody's one-to-one focused attention and be able to dive in. I have not found that it makes this process any less personal. We've been doing virtual consults exclusively for three years at Fora, and I love it. I don't think it will change. But you should know, is it virtual? Is it in person? Do you have a choice? Where is it? Where do you need to go? And now a word for one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. But Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. All right. So when you sit down with your doctor, wherever you are, the first thing that should happen is a review of your medical history. Now it might be extremely complete. It might be just hitting the high points, but you should be prepared for the following. How are your periods? Are they regular? Are they painful? Are you tracking your cycles? Have you been on any form of contraception? Have you had any pregnancies in the past? What was the outcome of those pregnancies? Have you had any surgeries? Are you currently taking any medications? Is there any difficulty determining when you ovulate? Have you had timed intercourse? Any issues with libido, erection, ejaculation? What medications is your partner on? And any significant medical problems either of you may have? like thyroid disease or high blood pressure, anything in that realm. If you carry any genetic diseases in your family, like cystic fibrosis, oh, my brother has a child with cystic fibrosis. That's also highly relevant information to let somebody know. So the first part will be all just talking and going through medical history. Any procedures on your uterus are important So things like prior IUDs or if you had a surgical termination. That should be relayed because that might be relevant depending on what's going on. Then your doctor will probably walk you through some basics about fertility. So they're going to talk about your ovarian reserve and what ovarian reserve testing is and basics about fertility. So here's some things that they will say. You have all the eggs you're ever going to have when you're born. These eggs run out as time goes on. I like to use the analogy of a vault inside the ovary. So you're born with all the eggs you're ever going to have in that vault. Every month, eggs come out of the vault. When the vault is empty you're in menopause or ovarian failure every month you actually have a group of eggs that comes out of the vault each egg grows inside a follicle the brain is going to send out follicle stimulating hormone or fsh which is a well-named hormone that stimulates a follicle to grow as that follicle grows the egg matures makes estrogen and then you ovulate the high estrogen levels from a mature egg is what triggers the brain to send out a signal of lh which is what allows you to then ovulate, have that follicle rupture and the egg released. That follicle then reforms and makes progesterone stimulated by LH from the brain, impulses throughout the entire luteal phase. And then this process is repeating itself over and over. Nothing stops the loss of eggs from the vault. It happened from mid-gestation, meaning when you were a baby in your mother's womb, eggs were coming out and you were losing them. In fact, every month from before you were born until you started puberty, you solely lost eggs because a group of eggs came out of the vault. There was no FSH, so all the eggs died, and the next month another group came out. FSH works to stimulate one egg to grow. Puberty is the brain turning on FSH. So what then happens is the same as what happens, let's say, when you're pregnant or when you're on birth control. In those two states, there's no FSH sent out from the brain. It is suppressed by either HCG or ethanol estradiol in the birth control pill. Therefore, a group of eggs comes out of the vault, no FSH, they all die, another group comes out. This is why pregnancies or contraception do not impact the longevity of your reproductive lifespan. Does not matter. Same thing with PCOS. A lot of eggs come out of the vault, There's not a strong enough FSH signal to get one of them to ovulate because it gets diluted, and so all the eggs die and you have another group come out. The brain and the ovary are besties and they just want one egg to ovulate. So this communication system is very tight. There's no way for me to know how many eggs are inside the vault, I wish. But what is interesting is when the vault is more full, more eggs come out every month, and as the vault is less full, less eggs come out every month. So I can evaluate the eggs outside the vault to get an idea of what's on the inside. And this is what we mean by testing your ovarian reserve. This is done by an ultrasound, counting the follicles, also known as an antral follicle count or an AFC, and drawing a blood test for AMH or anti-mullerian hormone. Now, the exact follicle number is going to change month to month. I can tell you an average, like an average 30-year-old is going to have about 20 eggs outside the vault but every month you're going to have an actual different number. So that might be 18, then 20, then 16, then 22, then 17, then 19, then 21, 21, 20. Every single month there's going to be an actual number and it will vary by up to 30%, we know that. Now AMH is made from the cells that surround the eggs called the granulosa cells. Therefore, more eggs, more cells. What we know is that AMH represents a longer group of eggs, let's just say, three months' worth. So AMH can help you interpret a one-time antral follicle count, meaning if you come in and I see 12 eggs, is that your average? Is that your lowest number and the truth is above there? Or is that your highest and the truth is below? Utilizing AMH and the antral follicle count together is extremely helpful in understanding where you are in the process of how many eggs you have left and your outcomes when it comes to IVF or egg freezing this is because if we put it simply the more eggs you have that is what you can get for ivf i can only get the eggs that are outside the vault to grow i can't tap into the vault once i can that will change the game but right now that's something that's still not proven so the more eggs you have the merrier when it comes to ivf or egg freezing outcomes no matter what your amh is or how many eggs are outside the vault As long as you're still having periods, you have the exact same chance of getting pregnant as somebody else your age. Think of it this way. If you are 30 and you're ovulating, it doesn't matter if you have 30 eggs outside the vault or eight, you have the exact same chance of getting pregnant because you're ovulating one. Now the person who has fewer eggs likely has less time to complete their family and is going to get fewer eggs per IVF cycle. And if they need IVF to grow their family, they are going to want to do that sooner rather than later. Therefore, there is a benefit to knowing this when it comes to your family plan. FSH and estradiol and LH are hormones that we tended to check before AMH testing was a thing. FSH really doesn't add much to the picture anymore unless you're to the point where you are not having periods and we are concerned you're in menopause. Once the brain is secreting extremely high levels of FSH, we now know that I'm not going to be able to get eggs to grow, Because in order to get eggs to grow, I have to give you FSH. And if your brain is already sending out super high levels and your ovary is not doing anything, it's very unlikely that taking very high levels in a shot is going to do anything either. That is why once you are out of eggs, you're out of eggs. So your doctor should talk you through some version of that. How do the reproductive hormones work? What is egg quantity, ovarian reserve? What is that testing and what are they going to do? Egg quality should be mentioned, and it's a very different but related topic. Egg quality really relates to genetic normalcy. So, those eggs have been sitting in that vault since before you were born. The chromosomes are held in a certain stage of cell division called metaphase of meiosis. And what this means is that your chromosomes are lined up in the middle, one to one, with their exact matching pair. And they're held in place by these meiotic spindles or proteins. And then when you go to ovulate they split and that's how you get half of your chromosomes into the egg that then can go be fertilized by sperm but the longer they sit there the more those proteins break down and the higher incidence of having aneuploidy or chromosome abnormality is going to be so the older you are the increase in abnormal genetics or aneuploidy increase in miscarriage rate increase in genetic abnormalities Decrease in pregnancy rate. You cannot turn back the clock. Age is the number one driver of egg quality, no matter what. However, other things can impact your egg quality, good and bad. And in the context of doing what you can, you should know this. Smoking cigarettes negatively impacts your egg quality. Other environmental toxins impact your egg quality. Things like consuming antioxidants, fruits and veggies, getting good sleep can help your egg quality decreasing your inflammation can help your egg quality so you should manage your medical conditions you should pay attention to what you put in and on your body and try to reduce toxins and increase antioxidants and prioritize your general health and wellness because it can be reflected in your eggs if you ovulate there's very little to do for that cause of infertility meaning Having regular predictable periods is a sign that you ovulate. So if you tell me your periods come every 28 days, I know you ovulate and I'm not worried about it. Now, if you're tracking and you have spotting or short luteal phase, I want to know if your periods are coming, but they're really irregular. 24 days, one month, then 37, then 27. That is irregularly regular. If they are just truly irregular, you have no idea when they show up or you skip months, not normal. And amenorrhea or not having a period at all is very abnormal. Those things you should get an evaluation for. It might be PCOS, low ovarian reserve, thyroid disease, prolactin, hypothalamic amenorrhea. There's a variety of things that can impact the body's ability to ovulate. And remember your period is a vital sign. So be really clear in your period history. If you've been tracking it, tell me what you found. But if you have reflected very regular cycles, I'm not going into a deep dive on, do you ovulate? You ovulate. I'm not worried about that one. I'm moving on. If I'm uncertain if you're ovulating, this is when sometimes people do what we call a day 21 progesterone test. This is really a mid-luteal progesterone or testing a week before anticipated period or a week after anticipated ovulation. This progesterone, remember, is not telling us how good your luteal phase is. It is a yes-no. Progesterone is going to rise and fall the entire luteal phase based on LH pulses from the brain, stimulating the corpus luteum. So you can see a progesterone anywhere from 3 to 40 nanograms. Anything over 3 tells me you ovulated. I'm done. I'm moving on. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperature starting to warm up, I'm so excited that summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan, it's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click Get Started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. Now, structural anatomic problems is something we want to evaluate. This is your uterus and fallopian tubes. This can be evaluated a variety of ways and things test different things. A transvaginal ultrasound allows you to see the muscular component of the uterus and the ovaries can tell you things like uterine fibroids, can count your follicle number, do you have any cysts in the ovaries? Most of us love a transvaginal ultrasound. I'm gonna get an antral follicle count with that. I will also look structurally at the muscular part of the uterus. But a transvaginal ultrasound alone does not tell me anything about the inside of the uterus. Meaning, could there be a polyp or scar tissue or a septum? I do not know, I cannot tell. So you're going to need some other imaging of the inside. Because the uterus is a potential space, this means that you need to expand the uterine cavity with some type of liquid in order to be able to see inside. This is typically either with a hysterosalpingogram, an HSG, a saline sonogram, or an SIS, with or without a view test to see the fallopian tubes, also known as the bubble test, or with surgery. Those are the options. So an HSG is also known as an X-ray dye test. This is where you are going to place a spike limb in the vagina, a small catheter to the cervix and inject dye into the uterus while watching with X-ray. This dye will separate the uterine walls from each other and you can see filling defects or areas the dye did not go. And then the dye will move through the fallopian tubes and you can see their structure. This is great for the tubes. It's less good for the uterus, but it's a very appropriate for a screening test. A saline sonogram is much better for the uterus but does not tell you anything about the tubes. Saline sonogram, you're putting water in and watch with an ultrasound so you can see both the inside and the outside of the uterus. This does help differentiate certain types of uterine conditions and ultimately gives you information about what is causing the problem, not just that there's a defect where there's no dye. If you have an abnormal HSG of the uterus, you might have it followed up with an SIS to evaluate what is going on before you go and see if you need surgery. Now, with an SIS, if your doctor or your clinic is skilled or has it available, you might be able to do a FemVue test. A FemVue is a device that mixes air bubbles inside that saline, and those air bubbles can travel through the fallopian tubes. In experienced ultrasound operator's hands, this can be a great way to see the fallopian tubes. When you combine an SIS and a view, you get a lot of great information. But if the tubes cannot be evaluated with a view, you might have to follow it up with an HSG. So they both have their places and neither is perfect. For either of these tests, you need to do it when you can see the best, which is after your period, but before you ovulate in that late follicular zone. For most people, this tends to be the five days after your period or day six to ten of your menstrual cycle. You're going to find that you'll have to notify somebody when your period starts to then get that test scheduled. The other option is to get it done while you're on birth control pills because the progesterone in the birth control pill keeps the lining thin so you can see everything. It's not that we're trying to be mean by doing it at this very narrow window, but we need the lining thin enough so that there's not a polyp that's just getting obscured by thicker lining. Now, surgery used to be part of the diagnostic process, but it's really gone away as technology has gotten better, meaning we can do these screening exams that are much less invasive than going to surgery. But ultimately, the gold standard for evaluating the inside of the uterus is hysteroscopy, camera inside the uterus. You put a camera in, you can see what's going on. You can combine that with laparoscopy or a camera through the belly button so you can see the abdominal cavity outside of the uterus, the ovaries, the fallopian tubes. Again, very rarely is somebody going directly to surgery for their diagnostics nowadays. Typically, you're doing lesser invasive testing and then going to surgery once you have an indication to do so, but every doctor is different. And if somebody is recommending surgery as your evaluation, I'm not saying it's wrong, I'm just saying ask why. What in your history made them want to go right to that? So, so far we have medical history, talking about ovulation, testing ovarian reserve, and then testing anatomy. You're also going to do a semen analysis. Semen analysis is after two to three days of abstinence, you're going to get an ejaculated sperm sample. You're going to want to know where is this collected, on site or at home. You're going to usually need an appointment to come and bring it, a certain collection kit, And then the lab is going to be looking at how much specimen there is, what the concentration of sperm is, how do the sperm move, and what is the morphology or the shape of the sperm. Not all semen analyses do morphology. If they don't, you're not getting a full assessment and you should get it done somewhere else. All fertility clinics are going to do a morphology, but sometimes you'll see random labs like CPL, or mail-in tests and they don't do a morphology and I would not waste my time doing that. That is typically the screening test for sperm. So if that's perfectly normal, the evaluation tends to stop there. If that is very abnormal, then you're going to undergo hormonal evaluation and try to see what's going on. If you have problems that reflect a hormonal evaluation anyway, like you cannot get or maintain an erection, you cannot ejaculate, you have a scrotal mass, testicular pain, You're uncircumcised with phimosis. It's very restrictive and painful. Those things should be told, even if they're embarrassing, because you might need to see a reproductive urologist on those issues alone, regardless of what the semen analysis says. Also, almost all fertility clinics are recommending preconception testing to make sure everything else is functioning okay. This varies clinic to clinic, but typically this is your blood type checking rubella and varicella status, trying to see if you're anemic, checking infectious disease testing, checking for vitamin D and your thyroid, and then preconception genetic carrier screening. I have had some of the most sad cases of my career for people who got pregnant and ended up having a baby with a terrible genetic lethal disorder that both partners carried and they had no idea. And they come to me for ivf for genetics so we can prevent that from happening again if you're in my clinic for any reason most likely things are not going to plan because most people don't see a fertility doctor and i do not want to put you through that experience that those other patients are having so if we do genetic carrier testing we are looking for autosomal recessive or silent carrier diseases what we are finding is that if two people carry a disease You should talk to genetics but there is often the opportunity to do pre-implantation genetic testing for that disease where we can make a probe to test this disease in an embryo and then selectively transfer embryos that do not have the disease at all or that only carry one gene in our carriers but will not be affected with the full spectrum disease this can be life-changing for families but you don't know unless you check Most of the time that genetic carrier testing is covered by insurance and I'm a big believer in it. So everybody comes in a little bit different. If you've had prior cycles, often I'm not spending my time walking you through all those diagnostics like I just did. We are diving into your cycles, what was good, bad, ugly, what I would do different and running through that. If you are brand spanking new and you're here for diagnostics and follow-up, which is where a lot of people are, that is what the new patient consult is going to look like. We are going to roll through these things. You will then come in for testing or have testing done, and then we will meet for a follow-up after testing, going through all of the results and talking through what you should do next. At any clinic, you want to know who are you talking to about finances? Is there a billing team, a certain finance person? Who is that going to be who can walk you through that part of the journey? And how do you communicate with your team? If your clinic calls, and that's the only way they communicate results, next steps, etc. and you do not ever pick up the phone, you're like me, then that's not going to be highly compatible. So you need to think about that. Do they use email? Do they have a portal? What is the messaging system and make sure it's something that will work for you or you're willing to modify in order to have it happen. Because really the fertility experience is unique. You cannot compare yourself to other people because everybody has a different experience, but knowing that you're in good hands, trusting the team that you're with, being prepared and educated about what's to come, that, in my opinion, is some of the most important and really what you can do. All right, well, it's now time for For Fertility's Sake, FFS, our weekly Q&A. Again, you can ask these questions on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD every Monday. We will answer questions on Insta here each week and in the newsletter, nataliecrawfordmd.com newsletter. We also do episodes where you can call in and get your questions answered. And these are absolutely some of my favorite episodes. You can call and leave a voicemail. It can be anonymous if you want it to be, but I love these. So you can call 657-229-3672. Again, 657-229-3672 and we can answer your questions. So let's dive in. Can short periods impact ovulation or egg quality? I'm gonna presume that we're using the word period to mean the actual time that you're bleeding and not the entire menstrual cycle, but having a short length of your period or menses, the number of days that you're bleeding, doesn't impact your egg quality. However, it can be a reflection that you're not building up enough of a lining which might mean you have a lower ovarian reserve. We see periods get lighter and closer together before they start spacing out. It might mean that your prolactin level is high or your thyroid is off. It might mean that there is scar tissue inside the uterus from some prior procedure that happened. And so if there is a change from what might be your baseline, you should definitely bring that up. The caveat here is after prolonged progesterone exposure, it is quite common for it to take the uterus a while to bleed back at its normal. So if you had a Morena, which is a progesterone IUD in place for five to seven years, and now you took it out and your periods are very light, that's okay. I'm not as worried about that, and they should get heavier the longer you go. How safe is an IVF pregnancy after age 35? Just as safe as it is under. You know, 35 is when we consider people advanced maternal age, and this distinction really happened back before we had some of the availability of modern medicine, meaning now we can do genetic testing even in early pregnancy or pre-pregnancy like we talked about, with pre-implantation genetic testing with IVF. Therefore, we are decreasing some of the adverse fetal outcomes associated with abnormal genetic number or aneuploidy. What we see is after age 35, you have a lower chance of pregnancy per month and a higher chance of miscarriage. But inherently, between age 35 to 40, there's no higher risk to you. IVF is no less safe. You're not more likely to have a bad outcome from the pregnancy. It's all about a reflection of do you require extra screening because of the potential genetics of the baby it does start to change as women get into their 40s especially their mid 40s and above where we do start to see higher risk with pregnancies at that age and we want to do echoes and ekgs and make sure all of our other medical problems are taken really well care of before we get pregnant but that should really be how we feel no matter what that you should try to optimize your health before pregnancy pregnancy is never health neutral Bad things happen in healthy people in pregnancy because there is a lot of risk. And ultimately, preparing yourself the best is the best thing you can do. How to deal with repeated canceled transfers. I'm emotionally exhausted and ready to stop trying. It is so hard to have a transfer cycle canceled. However, it's also very kind because you don't want your clinic just doing transfers over and over again. If things don't look good, I know that patients really want us to put... An embryo into the best setting possible. To me, this tolerance is all about understanding what's going on and what can you do different. The most frustrating thing I see is when patients have repeatedly canceled cycles over and over and over again, and their clinic is changing nothing. Why do we think anything's going to be different? We've made zero changes. So why is it canceled? Is it a thin lining? Are you prematurely ovulating? Do you need a different protocol type? Do you need extra estrogen? Do you need another evaluation of the uterine cavity? Do you need hysteroscopy? What can we do so that we won't have that outcome? Some people are never going to achieve these random magic numbers that we talk about, meaning you're never going to have a lining of seven or eight. That's just not how everybody's made. And who knows what type of linings embryos are implanting in the wild and natural pregnancies every day. So I always want to look at for you what was your peak lining in your IVF cycle when I got the eggs out and if that number was on the lower side am I shooting for an unrealistic number for this cycle I am quick to intervene and change things go to hysteroscopy do the gold standard make sure I'm not missing something because I do think that those embryos are gold and precious but for everybody at some point you do have to get an embryo in the body and what is it that's holding your clinic back from moving forward and what can you do again and do not be afraid to get a second opinion if that might be what is needed in this circumstance. Can you get pregnant with one ovary and one fallopian tube? Absolutely you can, both naturally and with IVF. I always say the tube moves around. We often think of it as stagnant, but a tube can move around. So it can even pick up an egg from the other ovary. Depending on what caused you to lose an ovary and a tube, that's always what I'm thinking about when I'm trying to decide is it worth trying naturally or do we need IVF? If you had to get it removed because of some terrible adhesions, it's likely the other side is impacted in some way. If you had it removed because of an ovarian cyst when you were younger, the other ovary is probably functioning just fine. However, if you're having infertility and it's taking a long time and you've had an ovary and a tube removed, please see a doctor sooner than later so we can see if that tube is in fact open and make sure everything is functioning correctly. Do intramural fibroids definitely need to be removed and do they impact fertility? Intramural fibroids do not always need to be removed, and in fact, the field has changed and we are removing less and less of them each time. When you think about a fibroid, you have fibroids that are inside the uterus called submucosal, you have fibroids that are in the muscular part called intramural, and you have fibroids on the outer part called the serosa. Depending on where the fibroid is, it has different risks. Submucosal fibroids or those inside the uterus are going to impact implantation and should be removed. Subserosal fibroids on the outside are not going to impact implantation and almost are never removed, at least from a fertility standpoint. If you're having severe pain, heavy bleeding, that's a different scenario. Intramural fibroids are the most common and those are fibroids in the muscular component of the uterus. Now, intramural fibroids that are really distorting the inside of the uterine cavity are often removed, but those that do not push into the uterine cavity are now rarely removed. When we think about removing them, it tends to be if they're extremely large, so that used to be 5 centimeters or bigger, or if they are associated with adverse pregnancy outcomes like recurrent pregnancy loss. Even in patients with large fibroids, even Some of my best friends who have come through who have much larger fibroids than that, I have left it if it looks remote from the cavity because is it worth disrupting the blood supply of that uterus, risking scarring that uterus, or decreasing its functionality for a fibroid that does not appear to be impacting the cavity and should not impact implantation in any way. So the field has really changed on this and we're being more conservative, doing less uterine surgery unless we really see something inside the cavity that is impacting it. I get very nervous when people are getting ultrasound-focused fibroid ablation or uterine artery embolization or ablation and all these other types of procedures because we just do not have enough data about what that does to the uterus long term if you want to have a pregnancy. We have some data that looks that it actually can be very bad. Uterine artery embolization can stop the blood from going to a fibroid and that might help you in a life-saving situation if you're losing too much blood but it might and likely changes the blood flow to the uterus and can be a big deal later when we're asking a placenta to grow into it. And those type of things can be associated with higher risks of placental issues, which can have huge complications like fetal demise, stillbirth, growth restriction, placenta accreta, emergent hysterectomy with C-section, blood loss, postpartum hemorrhage. So we take the uterus very seriously, and to answer the question, no. All intramural fibroids do not need to be removed and we are removing less and less of them now. All right. Well, I hope you found this episode interesting. Again, you can ask your questions every Monday on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD or call and leave some of your voicemails for 657-229-3672. Thanks, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford, MD, and check out the YouTube channel, Natalie Crawford, MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.